Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So, so me and Michelle met three years ago, and I, I explained my story and my experience because she was new, and she wasn't there when, when this whole thing went down with me in Houston and the NBA. So I explained my story, and I, I showed her the policy proposal and things that we have done. And since then, I've constantly reached out to the union to try and sit back down with her and, and express the urgency and collaborate on expressing the urgency or acting on the urgency of this mental health void or gap that she now admits is is there and there's been no response welcome to the edge of sports podcast i'm dave zyron this week we speak to former nba player royce white who is a trailblazer on the issue of mental health and sports he's going to speak about Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, and other NBA players who are going public with their mental wellness challenges and what the NBA is still not doing to accommodate for these players. Also, I've got some choice words about what is happening beneath the surface at Loyola University of Chicago as they make their Cinderella March Madness run. There's a lot of ugliness under the hoops. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards, a very special Kaepernick watch, and much more. But first, let's go to Royce White. Royce White, thanks so much for joining us on Edge of Sports. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. So before we jump right in and speak about everything that's happening uh, in the NBA and the dialogue that's taking place around mental health, just for my listeners who are new to sports, new to your story, I was hoping you could just take us back and tell us your story. Tell us what happened when your mental health story collided with the dictates of the National Basketball Association. Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, there, there is no... There is no real short form to that story, and I hey, guess I'll do go my, long form, buddy. my best to con- yeah, I'll do my best to condense it for everybody, so I don't uh, I don't bore <laughs> you to death. But I think that the I think that there's great uh, there's great value to the details, especially mm-hmm. in the situation. I think that the mental health domain the mental health domain is is nuanced in its in its fundamentals, and as such, the the occurrences around the mental health topic 
the, the nuances in those independent situations have to be acknowledged as such as well. And so with that, you know, I take you all the way back to before the draft because that's a, that's an important starting point. And, uh, you know, long before the draft in my college season, I had disclosed that I had anxiety disorder uh, and that I was dealing with that on an ongoing basis and had been for the past couple of years. I was diagnosed at 17 um, by a school-based mental health system in, in Minnesota at Hopkins High School, which is, number one, something that I advocate hugely for, is, and, and it's a godsend to the high schools that, that have the opportunity to have it um, in school-based mental health. And upon disclosing it in college, there was a outpour of, let's say, uh, support and at least hype. And there was kind of two different outpours, and, and that would remain the, the, the common theme of, of the rea- reaction or response from the public discourse in my situation up until now even. Um, and, and one of the sentiments was, as one would expect, similar to Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan of, you know, wow, you're an athlete that's doing great in college. And, you know, I was one of the probably best players in the country in that year and uh, having a great statistical season and, and had some great games against some, some pretty good players and our team was doing well. And, you know, one of the sentiments was, hey, man, you deal with anxiety. I do, too. You know, or I have a mother or a brother or a father or a girlfriend that, that deals with that. And I'm just so happy that you're speaking out about it because I never hear people speak out about it, especially people that are, you know, sort of have a, a minor celebrity within the public domain. And the other sentiment was all coming from the basketball world and saying that this is going to hinder you going forward. And I think it's important to point that that sentiment was being expressed even at the amateur level because it, it is part of a collective, let's say, ethos that continues to be expressed or continues to live or underwrite the mental health conversation within the sports domain in its entirety. So this wasn't just coming from the NBA. You were getting this uh, from whispers in the collegiate ranks as well. Even as you're succeeding and even as you're getting support from your coach at Iowa State, Fred Hoiberg, even with all this happening, you're hearing these whispers at the amateur level. Well, it's not so much that – because I only played one college season. So it's not so much that there was a a, a uh, suggestion of hindrance at the collegiate level. The, the, the suggestion of hindrance was – in the uh, hypothetical that I would be going on to the next level, which had become apparent through my play, right? So, for example, the media, mm-hmm. <laughs> without beating around the bush, the media was the one, was, was the medium that, that introduced the, the, the mental health disclosure as a hindrance, right? Your draft expresses and, and your different writers that are, that are covering the draft and things of that nature. And um, it, was, it was such a talking point of that draft going into the draft that I was under the impression that I wouldn't be drafted at all. Um, and yeah, I mean, because you know, the, the, the comment or the, let's say the, the, the consensus was that I was a top five talent, but because I had an anxiety disorder that my range was anywhere from late in the first round to late in the second round. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about the draft, if you're projected late in the second round, I mean, you're on the fringes of not being drafted at all. That's just, that's just the way it goes. Um, and so, so already, as you can see, there was 
there was a idea or there was a, cons- a consensus in, the I- in, an, in an idea that basically said that it was okay that me having an anxiety disorder, despite having showed that I could play at an elite level with an anxiety disorder, that it was okay if that was to affect my draft stock in a disproportionate manner. That was, that was, already, being, that was already being conceded before I was even drafted. And that wouldn't have been such a big deal coming from the media because you and I and everybody else all know that the media sometimes has a sensationalized perception of the things that are going on. But this is one of the rare cases where it seemed that the media had gotten it spot on, which was even more concerning. (laughs) I mean, there's a concern to be had with the sensationalization of the media in general. Uh, But there is a concern to be had there. But in this situation, it was actually more concerning that they seem to be right in the sensationalized, you know, uh, idea, ideas and, and sentiments. And uh, some of the examples of that is like me being in the pre-draft process, which I don't know if, if people know is, you know, you fly around to different teams with a group of people and you, and you play and then you answer some questions. And it's basically like an interview process for, for, for top collegiate basketball players or incoming draftees. <clears throat> and, uh, then we all have a big pre-draft combine in Chicago where we do the same thing. Basically they do all the baseline testing where you see the vertical jumps and things like that. In recent years, they've now started covering that on, uh, on television. And, uh, in that process, ironically, uh, one of the people that was in my pre-draft group was Draymond Green. <laughs> and, um, yes, uh, Mike Scott, who's, who's still playing for, I want to say Washington. Yeah, the Wizards there. Mike Scott still plays mm-hmm. out there. Is that right, Dave? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Having a good year, too. And, uh, you know, they, they – yeah, yeah, good dude, too. So they, they, they put a, a, group of, a group of guys together, you know, split it up some big, some forwards, and some, and some guards. So anyway, I, I tell you that to, to set the framework of the, the conversation that's emerging now about, about mental health and, you know, me playing versus me not playing and some of the other people that are playing, et cetera. So – Anyway, in the pre-draft process, for example, of this mental health sentiment that the media had expressed that ended up being pretty accurate, I was in Miami. And uh, in Miami, we went, we went through our workout and we had a discussion afterward. It was Tim Hardaway there and Pat Riley and some other people who I didn't know by face or, or by name. You know, I'm sure they were managerial staff, like, you know, general manager, assistant general manager, scouts, things like that. But we're having a conversation and – one of the first things that I'm asked about, obviously, is the anxiety because it's the, it's the, un, you know, it's the, the big topic of this draft, especially surrounding me. Um, and, you know, they asked me about the times that I drove in college. And I only drove three times in my entire, entire college career, uh, once to Kansas State, once to Missouri, and, and then once to the NCAA tournament. And, you know, Kansas, uh, Kansas State and, and Missouri are about six hours apiece. They're the same distance from Ames, Iowa. So those were real short drives. But anyway, they asked me about that. And my response to them was like totally upfront and, you know, transparent. Like, yeah, yeah, I drove and I actually played really well that I drove when I drove. And it's part of the reason why Fred allowed me to drive after the first time. And after the second time is because I played so well driving. Uh, and their response immediately was, well, if you got drafted here, you wouldn't even be able to drive to Orlando. And I'm like, wait a minute. Well, first off, why are you even saying that? That I mean, first off, like, it doesn't make any logistical sense that I wouldn't be able to drive to Orlando, number one. So why do you feel the need to say that? And, and number two, why are you even really talking about the logistical plans or, or foreshadowing 
<laughs> foreshadowing any um, adversarial nature to logistical plans when, when I'm not even here yet, and there's no doctors in this room. So now I'm starting to wonder what doctors have informed this statement that you just, you know, haphazardly threw out there. And that's what it was completely it was a haphazard statement that wasn't informed by any medical professionals. <clears throat> there had obviously been some discussion about the fears of the mental health domain uh, prior to me, now that I'm looking back on it, because, you know, three of the, the three main fears or, or contentions that I heard to put in the form of policy in place is, and, and the, that came up in this first conversation because I was like, well, if there is nothing formal, we probably should do something formal. I don't even think that that's arguable that we should do something formal. The question is, what should we do? Um, and that was, that was rejected. And, and the, the main points of contention were number one, they were afraid of setting a precedent, uh, which is totally reasonable. I mean, cause precedent has huge implications. Um, number two, they were afraid that players would use mental illness to not playing and still get paid so basically they would fake mental illnesses um and the third the third fear was that there was a that there was a general skepticism towards the mental health science in general i mean you must have found this insulting at the time well i i mean that's i, I found it alarming for sure uh sure but the idea that people would just make up mental illness uh to avoid playing well, well, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, I mean, it just comes off as a pretty outrageous uh, contention. Oh, it's, repre- it's reprehensible. But, you know, if a player is so discouraged by the environment that they are in, that they would actually fake an illness in order to avert having to play and still get paid. And, and uh, if, you, if you don't have the, if you don't have the, let's say, perspective to see that that still suggests that there is a mental illness, it may not just be the one that the player is falsely claiming, then that, that, that's what I mean by the education or the mental health awareness is, is low to a negligent standard, like to a negligent point. You know, if, you, if you're faking a mental illness, you probably have a mental illness. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that, that is, like, if you are so unhappy with where you are or, or you're so... Uh, let's say you just, you know, don't love the game anymore. There are some underlying implications there within the mental health domain or the psychological domain that, that may not be something that you're able to articulate. And you may not be able to articulate it honestly, like in a genuine way. It's not like you're actually trying to, to um, lie to people. You may just not have the tools to articulate why you are, don't want to play or, or why you this or why you that, because I mean, let's not act like the mental health domain isn't vastly, under under explored and in discussing traveling and this is a part of the story that i think has been mistold a great deal a great deal of times just as recently as this week when when people have mentioned me in stories you know in in in, in sort of a sequential uh, timeline of this whole kevin love demar rosa situation is <clears throat> it was houston's it was members of houston's front office that came to sit and meet and discuss traveling uh, in, in the concession that a much bigger policy was impossible or, 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 or long to come that suggested or brainstormed a bus. And, and uh, Raphael Stone, who is the team attorney for Houston, who most people won't know, he was the first point of contact when this whole thing um, kind of transpired. And we sat down at lunch and, and my manager was there and we were just discussing some ideas. And one of the ideas was like, you know, is a bus possible? Would you, would you be okay with that? How do you feel about the road? You know, how do you feel about 
driving. You know, we heard you drove a couple times in college. Like, how did that work out for you? Like, did you like it? Or, 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 or you know, do you have some fears about that as well? Real good conversation that Raphael Stone was having. I, like, looking, and I'll tell you in, in, ahead of time that a lot of people in the situation ended up really mad at Raphael Stone, even on my side of things. And I'm like, man, I thought Raphael Stone brought a, a really a really clean perspective and, 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 and non-agenda to the table. And he was just talking basically in – you know, in, in objectivity, you know, um, and, and, you know, he's so trying again, to help figure it out. He's trying to help figure it out. And he was like, listen, you know, how do you feel about a bus? John Madden took a bus, you know, it's like, Hey, what, what do you think about that? And I was kind of like, well, you know, yeah, a bus would be cool. I, I love the road. You know, actually, I, I think a bus would be, would be awesome. So he was like, you know, we, we talked about the formalities, how that would look and, you know, we're putting it in writing. It, it, would the league have any contentions? And the only thing that I would say that he did that wasn't, that was probably a mistake was that he was overly confident in his ability to have the league agree to formal things like even traveling accommodations. Uh, and, and that's what he kind of did. He, he kind of suggested that, hey, listen, we've never done this before but I talk to the league on a regular basis and things are changed all the time in terms of policy or, or, or formalities that are written up for players to, to, to have certain, certain things go on or certain operational things going with their team. Right. Which if you look at it, if you look at it, take a step back and look at it, there's already huge contradiction there because the policy that we just suggested, which is totally reasonable was like totally rejected. It was, it was denounced based on the fact or based a lot in part, uh, in part at least um, with the notion that we can't put formal things in writing easily. <laughs> right. And okay. So then we turn right around and we say, well, now we're talking about traveling. It's like, Oh, well, yeah, we can work some things out. So you can see that there's already a communication issue that, that just doesn't have to do with mental health. It has to do with the way that they operate, you know, in general. So again, he you know he he kind of expressed to us, kind of expressed to us, you know, the bus thing will make that work. We'll make that work. That that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. So I don't see why we couldn't make it work. The next time that we heard from the Houston Rockets regarding the travel situation, it was told to myself and my manager and my agent that the league had expressed to Houston that they considered. Houston providing me a bus as a salary cap infringement and that Houston could be subject to millions of dollars in fines and other penalties, which in our industry usually means draft picks or something of that nature, other penalties, if they were to go through with accommodating me with a bus. Now, all the things up until this point, I could have, uh, let's say, dismissed as a lack of awareness, you know, a newness, let's say, um, uh, you know, mental health being something that uh, does have some nuance to it. So there, there are probably fears and apprehensions just involved with even talking mental health. But that notion was reprehensible. Okay. And it was, yeah. start, it was starting to shape my perspective that, that there may be a lack of awareness that was being used to, for people to hide in, in gray areas, to hide their malevolence in gray areas. Um, because, so you tried to raise awareness. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, even, it's, it's even worse than that. I mean, it's like if you can honestly come up with a, a reasonable argument as to how a pre-existing medical condition uh, 
being accommodated could be considered a salary cap infringement, then I'm all for it. Please tell me. I mean, just, just, you know, I invite anybody to just tell me how that, how that is, or, or how that is, how that is logical. Um, I mean, we could all make an argument for it for sure. Like you could say, well, well, what if you say you needed a Lamborghini, you know, for your anxiety? It's like, come on guys, let's, let's be, let's be, you know, let's not, let's mm-hmm. not do that. You know, <laughs> I asked to be able to take a bus instead of a private jet. That's not, that's not a perk. It's not a bonus. That is, if anything, it's actually tougher. It would be, it would have been tougher on me to drive than it would be to, to take the jet. Well, not for me because I have a, a, a phobia of heights and, and, and the stress that comes along with that is why I asked to take a bus in the first place. So it wouldn't be necessarily harder, but it, but just from a logistical standpoint, it wouldn't be easier. Um, so, you know, I had a big, big problem with that. And I told Houston, I said, listen, and, and mind you now, it may be totally possible that Houston was lying on behalf of the league and using the league as a straw man to express their own opinions. That's totally possible. So, you know, the league may have never even said that this was a salary cap infringement. I wasn't talking directly to the league, and I'm not so sure that my agent was either. I'm thinking about comparing and contrasting to today, and a difference is that, you know, you weren't only telling your story the way Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, Kelly Oubre Jr. have been telling their story, but you were actually making real requests for structural changes in terms of how the NBA handles mental health. Because to this day, does the NBA even have a policy for dealing with this, even with these players speaking out? Does the, the Players Association have a policy? Well, the, the, well, they've expressed that they're working on a policy as we speak. Um, now they are. And, you know, now they are, yeah. Well, well yeah, but the, the, the truth is, is that, no, they don't have a policy. As of right now, they don't have one still. It reminds me of um, you, you, you tweeted this statement. Now, I'd just love for you to explain it in more detail. Um, I believe you did this after Kevin Love's piece in the, in the Undefeated, not the Undefeated, in the Players' Tribune broke, and you tweeted, it's strange to see people take the credit for something that you pioneered, people that stayed silent when there was much to lose who still stand side by side with the institutions that mocked struggle. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that statement for my listeners, please? Yeah, well, there's a lot in there, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, there is a lot. We almost got to take it sentence by sentence. Let's start with <laughs> the first sentence. It's strange to see people take the credit for something that you pioneered. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in, in that sense, um, a lot of people responded to me and, and, and said that, you know, it's not about credit. And, and they're, they're, I think there's a belief that, that I was talking about Kevin Love or DeMar DeRozan because we are conditioned in this time to – uh, think that that credit is goes to the, you know the 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 adulation, right? It's like uh, mm-hmm. people see that Kevin Kevin Love and Demar Derozan are being supported or being you know circulated through the media in a positive light, and that I am concerned with that credit. Uh, I am not concerned with that credit at all. As a matter of fact, I was more speaking to michelle roberts who had a week before and this is how little people's attention spans or how incomplete let's say people's information can be i was more speaking to the fact that michelle roberts had rolled out a policy plan that highlighted uh let's say three main points that i literally wrote for them like not not only did i suggest it or i didn't i didn't discuss it in the abstract i literally wrote 
a policy proposal for them that highlighted those three points. And she, you know, and she totally, she totally rolled it out like it was her idea, which was, which was strange to me, you know, and, and it was like, um, it, it not only, it, 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 and the, there is, there, there are personal experiences that I have in the last three years that make it stranger than it would sound to the, to the fan, I think, or to the average listener is like, I've reached out to them. So, so me and Michelle met three years ago and I, I explained my story and my experience because she was new and she wasn't there when, when this whole thing went down with me in Houston and the NBA. So I explained my story and I, I showed her the policy proposal and things that we have done. And since then I've constantly reached out to the union to try and sit back down with her and, and express the urgency and maybe and, and, and collaborate on expressing the urgency or, or let's say, um, acting on the urgency of this mental health void or gap that she now admits is, is there. And there's been no response really. I mean, even so recently as two years ago, you know, my, uh, 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 a doctor, a policy that, that is director of a policy center, uh, wrote a letter in, in support of coming together with some medical minds and some people from the mental health field to, to help shape policy. And we didn't even get a response to that. Uh, so, you know, that's what I mean by taking the credit for something that I pioneered. It's like, well, I mean, Jesus, if you're going like to lay out a policy, putting this stuff together for them, you know, no, and you did it, put it together. And, and, and the question is that I have is, is not only did you not put this together, I did, but the, 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 the problem I have with it is why did it take you so long to do it? Right. It's because it's because, uh, the implications of you actually taking there are implications to you having, uh, let's say, let's say appropriated an, uh, uh, an idea of mine to forward on as your own and then not being able to actually do it with any sense of real logical urgency because it wasn't your idea. So, of course, you wouldn't have the urgency to, to carry it out in an adequate manner. Like, for example, how is it? I'll just give you an example that, that comes to my mind that's alarming as shit. How is it that the player's dress code coming to and from the arena can be formalized in the last collective bargain agreement and the collective bargain agreement before that, and there not be a mental health policy that can be formalized. I mean, that is, that in itself is, is reprehensible. And if I'm the director of a union, those are the things that I'm saying. And those are the things that I'm saying publicly. And if there is a bureaucratic, let's say red tape from the NBA that, that isn't allowing you to to actualize the things that need to be actualized like a mental health policy in a formal way then that should be what you're expressing not coming out and saying that the nba and the in the union are together on this mental health thing because you're not because if you were there there would have been a mental health addendum created three years ago right but the, the, the 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 truth is is that the nba is much more hesitant for the reasons that I expressed, mainly that players will fake mental illnesses. And, and you don't want to say that. So again, that's, that's kind of what I mean when I said uh, who stands side by side with the institutions that mock struggle, because, you know, mental health is basically, it is the, the height of human achievement. It's the Holy grail of human achievement, right? So there's, there's all of these existential philosophical, uh, you know, uh, questions and answers or, or maybe answers that are, that are tied up in this mental health domain in this conversation. And, and on the low end, there's just an irreducible struggle to beingness, 
within the mental health domain. <clears throat> and uh, you guys are literally ignoring it. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, it, it is not only are you ignoring it, but you don't get to come forward and say like, you don't get to come forward and try and take credit for it and then stand literally next to the people that mocked it and are still mocking it. They're using you to mock it. That's what they're doing. They're like, damn, she's going to go out there and say that we're doing something together and we don't even have to actually show up to do anything. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah, this Man, is perfect. This is I, so I, bet, I bet Adam Silver is licking his chops. Adam Silver sitting somewhere in New York City like, Man, Michelle is literally M- Michelle is a either she's a real puppet, which which would which would be very 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 concerning information. But if not, she's like a voluntary puppet. Like she's just gonna go out there and say that we're doing. Adam Silver didn't respond to the letter. Adam Silver, I, I wrote a letter, and, and you you can see it on the last Renaissance. You read it, Dave, but I wrote a letter that yeah, that, that brought up many of the things that I said, and they're all factual, like the things that I said about Houston the things that I said about the way that the policy is set up, all of these things have been admitted at this point. There's no, there's no argument about it. These are facts. And I wrote a letter to, to Adam Silver expressing that, and he didn't even respond to me. He didn't even have the decency to, to respond personally. He had Kathy Bears respond. And what Kathy said was that the things I was expressing were inaccurate. That's as little as two years ago. So they don't really believe that there's a mental health issue in the way that I articulate it. And I don't really think that they believe that there's an urgent mental health issue at all, or else it would have been formalized or a priority or point of emphasis over things like, let's say, the sponsors on the left sides of the jerseys that we now see popping up, right? Uh, and, 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 and Michelle won't even say anything about that. So. <laughs> so I'm guessing she hasn't reached out to you since Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan came forward. Well, of course she hasn't. I mean, of course. And has anybody in the NBA reached out to you? Um, yeah, there are people scattered throughout the NBA that reached out. I had, I had a person, I had a person who I won't name because you know, out of fear of them actually, you know, having some, uh, some, some backlash from it, some, some professional backlash, that reached out about eighteen months ago and told me that that there are these town meetings that happen in the NBA office. And, and for, for those of you who don't know, the players are as unaware of what goes on in the NBA office as any common fan is. Like, we don't know who works there. We don't see those people ever. It's much like the NCAA office. Like, who even works there? It's like a shadow group. Nobody even knows them. Except the figureheads, like a Mark Embrit or an Adam Silver. Like, I didn't even know Kathy Barron's before she sent, you know, sent a response to my letter. I'm like, who is Kathy Barron's? I don't even know this person. Um, and so... So the, I guess there are these town meetings, they call them town hall meetings that happen at the NBA office. And uh, I guess this person who reached out to me had brought up with a few of his coworkers in, in, in light of the Larry Sanders situation, what the NBA was going to do or plan to do about the mental health issue. And he said that he had done that when Larry Sanders came out. So this must've been like a year before he had even reached out to me or a year and a half. And he basically was like, we have gotten no response on that. Like, we've gotten no response. There's literally been silence when it comes to the mental health topic in these meetings. Um, so, I mean, there's that. I mean, that, that's, the, that's, I'd say, the most concerning uh, communication I had with, with anybody within the situation. 
Um, but other people have reached out, other players have reached out and, and discussed some of their concerns and some of their experiences and, you know, coaches, GMs, everybody. I mean, there's all kinds of people that have, that have reached out and, um, and had good discussions with me and, and disclosing some of their, their own struggles and experiences. So, Well, I think it's so important that people know your story because if the NBA and NBA Players Association are in fact turning a corner on these questions of mental health, it's important to know the background and it's important to know who drove the car up to the corner in the first place. So there would even be space for athletes like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan to tell their story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have no, you know, and the comment, the comment, the comment was, was definitely not aimed at DeMar and Kevin. I think that, I think that Kevin's situation, I guess, would be the prime example or the, the validator of many of the concerns that I expressed four or five years ago. And DeMar DeRozan's situation would be, let's say, the, the optimal ideal representative of, of uh, how the owners or management's concerns may be displaced or, or, or totally inaccurate. I mean, one of, the, one, of the, one of the issues or one of the fears that was expressed is like, well, you know, can you even play or how reliable will you be? Like I said earlier, like DeMar DeRozan has clearly just admitted or expressed that he's been dealing with this depression and anxiety thing for the better part of his career. I mean, even if he's just recently been diagnosed in the last two to three years, he's probably been dealing Mm -hmm. with it for the better part of his career. Uh, And him being recently diagnosed, right. Him being more recently diagnosed has to do with his, him reaching out for help with these things because that's what he wanted to do or was driven to do by his symptoms. But it shows that, I mean, you can be pretty reliable. I mean, to an all-star standard. So, so you don't get to come to the table now and say that we're not putting a policy in place because, because guys aren't going to be reliable. Like, you know, I mean, what evidence of there is that even in the players, even in the players that, that had some more, let's say heated, heated issues before, uh, when it comes to to mental health, like let's use Meta World Peace for example, that motherfucker was pretty reliable too. I mean, when it comes right down mm-hmm. to statistically, I mean, you could say that some of the things that he did or some of the antics were distractionary or or whatever you want to say, you know. But that motherfucker was pretty reliable. I mean, you know, you can't name five better defenders in in the history of the NBA. And there was one point when he was with Houston where people were having a really hard time guarding him too. So, I mean, and, and, you know, so, I mean, like, there's all kinds of misconceptions. No, right. and, and what's important with, with actually bringing this conversation to light is to separate what the misconceptions are from what the, uh, let's say, the, the willful ignorance is. You know, the, the, and those, those are important to separate, I think. His name is Royce White. His story is one we need to know. Royce, thank you so much for your time. I, I do want to ask, is there anything else you want to add to this story? Anything else about Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, about the road that you paved so these other athletes can you be more open about their own mental health challenges? Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I think I, I you know, I, I want to add that I'm, I'm totally in support of, of Kevin Love coming out and sharing his struggle and DeMar DeRozan sharing his struggle. Uh, I think it's a it's a potential step in the right direction for sure. Um, I would say that in going forward, we have to understand that the mental health conversation is discussed in extremes right now. 
Uh, and that has to change and that perspective has to change. For example, we see mental health be pulled into the public discourse through events such as school shootings or, or, you know, even in some of these, um, you know, uh, race relations between cops and civilians, mm-hmm. you know, white cop, black, black civilian situation. We see mental health come into the conversation or, or it, at points of extreme uh, tragedy or extreme loss or, or, you know, extreme violence. And uh, those are caricatures of the mental health conversation completely. And for example, um, you know, one way to not caricature mental health and, and what the real mental health conversation is, is like the prevalence of dehydration. Like most of the people are walking around America dehydrated and not only are they dehydrated, but there's also a, I'd say a caffeine and coffee addiction epidemic that is going on. That is the mental it's health like, conversation. It's like you're talking totally right to me. <laughs> right. I mean, it, that is the mental health like, conversation. Like you said that and I reached for my water. Uh, right. Right. No, I mean, it's a, it's a real thing. I mean, it, it is the conversation that needs to be had. And, um, I, you know, I fear that that in, in times like this where and, and which was part of my letter also was that superficial platforms don't bring genuine progress. Um, and, and I think that uh, although I, can, you know, uh, definitely commend Kevin Love and De- De- DeMar DeRozan for what they've done, I would also uh, encourage them to to get more engulfed in the mental health conversation in a, in a genuine and authentic and informed way so that they can bring more to the conversation than just uh, what is on the surface uh, uh, that the media will drive. And, and, and also in closing, I like, I think I'd like to bring fans attention to a, con- a question that I've been asked recently uh, a lot is, is why there's such an apprehension to this mental health topic. <clears throat> and I just, and I just, do a theory out there and I'm not, I don't know it to be true. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, how accurate it is or how much validity it has, but, but, uh, it's, it's one that interested me because as I look over my own experience over the past four years, it's hard for me to actually understand what the structural apprehension is. I understand that the individuals involved probably are very apprehensive about the mental health conversation in general, because it holds a mirror up to yourself and it asks you to be accountable in ways that you probably haven't been asked to be accountable not only in relation to someone else's life, but in your own. Uh, and as we just discussed, to acknowledge the mental health conversation in its entirety would be to acknowledge caffeine and not and, and, and maybe the players in, in this instance, in, in terms of the sports domain, maybe it's not the players so much that are affected by the caffeine portion of the accountability of mental health, but the management that's affected by the caffeine portion of the mental health conversation. And that's scary as shit. So I understand that. But then I started to think about the, mm. the, the role that the corporate, the corporate drives or, the, or the, the, the part, the role that the corporate side of things drives into this. And uh, I just wondered, like, and this is just me brainstorming and I'll share it because I think that that type of transparency is what's needed to bring genuine progress. Is there, apprehens- is there an apprehension to fully acknowledge the mental health conversation because for the past 20 years, it has been emerging, an emerging consensus that the mental health conversation and alcohol and substance abuse are one and the same or, or, or very closely uh, mm-hmm. symbiotic. Uh, Self-medicating. Right. And the question is that I have is, is it possible that the apprehension comes from the NBA's relationship with Budweiser? And if we're to say that if we're to acknowledge the mental health conversation in its its entirety 
and say that the players are going to be reflective of that acknowledgement. The management is going to be uh, reflective of that acknowledgement. The ownership is going to be reflective of that acknowledgement. Is it also fair to say that the fans may need to be reflective of that acknowledgement, at least within the confines of the participation of the sport? And would that maybe mean that we need to count how many drinks are being had at these events? And that that'll, that would cut into profits in a major way too. Oh, well, well, not only that, but I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe for, for sure that, but maybe bigger than that. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know, like, yes, the profits is, is, is the, is the thing for sure, but there is much more to that. It's, it's like the paradigms of, of power shifting too much causes great apprehension. It's like, who would argue who would who would really who would really argue the the logic in you know let's say keeping a, a track of a person's ID and, and keeping count of how many beers they've had at a game so that they don't maybe drive home drunk, which we know is happening a lot from these professional sport events. And if you don't know that or if you don't believe that, you're full of shit and you can exit yourself from the conversation like now because that type of naivety is exactly what has us in these types of situations. It's like, no, people are driving home from the arenas drunk. We know it. Okay. Uh, And, or maybe also a a fan doesn't get so mad or angry or, or drunk and angry that they throw a beer on a player and he runs into the crowd and gets in a fight and then he's suspended for 50 games. And then we make him out to be the villain. Right. These are the things that, and this is part of the reason why I would say another question is like, well, you know, why, why haven't you, why, why, why do you really think you haven't played in the NBA or why aren't you in the NBA now? Like, that's why. Cause I bring that type of conversation and I'm not saying that I have the answers and I'm not saying that you can make any clear cut opinions or, or observations about people's intent, because there's nothing really clear and, and, and uh, simple about, about intent and it's, and it's fundamental and it's fundamentals. There's nothing clear about it, but there are some questions to be had, I think. And I think that that's a perfect one. You know, people ask me about Ron Artest all the time. And I'm like, I thought it was reprehensible that they, that they suspended him for 50 games and villainized him like that. It's like, how about you, how about you go back and refine your, your alcohol consumption policies at the arenas? You sure don't have a problem with, with administering and governing how, what, what players wear to the arenas. That seems to be important. You don't have a problem administering or governing what players say while they're on the court in the heat of battle. Right. And we, and not only that, you market it as the heat of battle while not acknowledging what the fundamental properties of battle are. I mean, it's just all, it's all twisted, you know, it's all twisted and, and it, and it doesn't have to be. And, and that's, that's, that's the type of conversation that I bring and people don't like that. And, and I'm okay with that, but we're not going to stop bringing it. That's for well, sure. We like it. <laughs> Not going to stop bringing it. We like it big time. Keep bringing it, Royce. Keep bringing it. Royce White, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports Podcast. This was live. Oh, thanks, Dave. I appreciate it, man. Talk to you soon, brother. And now I've got some choice words about what's going down at Loyola of Chicago. Okay, look, if you've been paying attention at all to March Madness, you know that Loyola, the Ramblers, just brought the madness to March by upsetting the University of Miami 64-62 to on a last-second three-pointer by senior forward Dante Ingram. While the unassuming Jesuit College will undoubtedly 
and understandably go into celebration mode following the win, that sense of triumph has not been the case over the last month. On February 24th, as the team played their last home game at, and I didn't make up the name of their arena, Gentile Arena, students were protesting right outside the gym against the school's prioritization of new athletic facilities over other pressing needs at the college. The Jesuit school had announced that they will be spending $18.5 million dollars and as much as $2 million of that siphoned off from student tuition fees on a new practice facility that will only be used by four teams, men and women's basketball and men and women's volleyball. This isn't athletics or school spirit, it's graft. It's using the excitement around the success of the men's team as a Trojan horse to force priorities that most would reject. That there was a stadium protest at a college would be news enough, but on this fateful day of February 24th, the school's management showed its true colors, what it thinks about dissent, free assembly, and students of color who aren't putting a ball through a hoop. As the protest was coming to a close and the banners were being rolled up and the signs being put away, students saw Loyola police stopping and frisking two black men who had attended the game. They were being accused of illegally selling tickets. Ironically, this game was Loyola's first sellout since 2003. A black student who was part of the protest, Alan Campbell, went over to act as a witness in case of campus police misconduct, not knowing that he would go from witness to victim. Campbell found himself thrown to the ground, handcuffed, and arrested by Loyola police. And the video of his arrest and the police's rough treatment of another student of color went viral and had been viewed close to three million times. Campbell was released from custody, but only after student protesters and community members surrounded the police car where he was being held for 45 minutes. Now, when you watch the video, you can also see the assistant dean of students, Jessica Landis, watching the chaos and choosing to do nothing. While the administration is claiming that they're investigating what can be plainly seen on video, they also immediately issued a statement dismissing charges of racial profiling and instead blaming the students for their own brutalization writing of Alan Campbell. The individual resisted and was brought to the ground and restrained for the safety of the individual and others. The following Wednesday, black students called for a walkout in protest of the brutality by their own campus police, and 500 rallied inside the student center on the very spot where the arrest took place. Under the slogan and hashtag, Not My Loyola, students kept up the pressure, holding a packed town hall with 400 people. In the words of one attendee, It was honestly one of the most powerful, intense meetings I've ever been to. This was followed by a rally of several hundred students where demands were delivered to the office of the school's president, Joanne Rooney. Their central demand was that any effort to discipline protesting students should immediately cease and instead of investigating their conduct, the police should be investigated instead. They found, however, that President Rooney wasn't in her office to receive their demands because, wait for it, She was out of town watching Loyola basketball play in their conference tournament. As one community activist said to me, these students aren't anti-sports or anti-athlete, but are raising questions about the university's priorities. It's about democracy, racism, and police accountability before it's about sports. Most importantly, we need to make sure that protesting students aren't targeted for punishment just because they stood up to the priorities of the administration and their school's own police force, end quote. One thing is certain. As the eyes of the sports world now turn to Loyola 
folks should be aware that Not My Loyola is the rallying cry as they attempt to make sure that the joy of sports doesn't come laced with the poison of stadium spending and the campus police department more than willing to smash dissent. The central sponsor for this podcast is The Nation magazine, and everybody should support The Nation because it does unintimidated, unencumbered, and unembedded journalism and has been doing so for 150 years. This week, Joan Walsh is going to write about the 7,383-seat strategy, and John Nichols has a great report on net neutrality candidates. We also have tons of great stuff in the books and art section, including the great Evan Kindley on the TV show Atlanta. You've got to check this out. Uh, remember, just go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please support The Nation magazine, because when you do so, you're also supporting the continuing existence of this podcast. And now, back to Edge of Sports. Okay, this week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to Eric Reed, former safety of the San Francisco 49ers. Eric Reed was the first person to kneel with Colin Kaepernick, and guess what? He's a free agent. And guess what else? Nobody's trying to sign him. It looks like another case of collusion, and Eric Reed called this over a year ago. I want to read to you what Eric Reed said, because it really does say something. He said this, I believe, over a year ago when he was asked if he was worried that he himself uh, would be, quote-unquote, blackballed or whiteballed or a victim of collusion by ownership. He said, I wouldn't use the word concerned. I would say I understand that it's a possibility, and I'm completely fine with it. The things that I've done, I stand by, and I've done that for my own personal beliefs. Like I said, I'm fine with whatever outcome happens because of that. Uh, Eric Reed has also been on social media writing about how it feels right now to be ignored on the free agent market. And this is what he said in response to one fan who said that he would be a great signing that because his protest activities made him more inexpensive because so many teams are turning away from him. This is what Eric Reed said. The notion that I can be a great signing for your team for cheap, not because of my skill set, but because I've protested systemic oppression is ludicrous. If you think that, then your mindset is part of the problem too, end quote. Believe you me, we are going to keep up with this story about Eric Reed and try to get him on the show. No question about it. Now it's time for the just sit your ass down, sit your ass down part of the show. Sit your ass down. And this week it's going to a group of people we could give it to every week, but this week it's got a particular sports focus, and that's Fox News. Fox News had the unmitigated gall to highlight a quote from Shaquille O'Neal about guns in schools. And this is what Shaquille O'Neal said. He said, put more officers in schools instead of banning guns. And Fox News said, Shaquille O'Neal has something to say. And here's the issue. All year we've heard, shut up and dribble from Fox News. All year we've heard, hey athletes, you shut up, don't speak. Shut up and play, shut up and dribble, stick to sports. And this just demonstrates their hypocrisy so hilariously and so clearly. And this is something we've seen, it's such an old script, throughout the last 150 years, which is, it's not that sports and politics aren't allowed to mix, it's sports and a certain kind of politics. If you're willing to say, yeah, put more cops in schools, which by the way will disproportionately hurt brown and black children and only aid the school-to-prison pipeline, 
If you are for that, Fox News is only more than too happy to highlight your brilliant and incisive insights. But if you dare say something like, gee, maybe putting more guns into the schools is not the answer, then it's shut up and dribble. So Fox News, please sit your ass down. Edge of Sports is brought to you by Can It Happen Here? Edited by Harvard professor and former Obama advisor Cass Sunstein. Can It Happen Here? is a powerful collection of essays. In his 1935 dystopian novel, It Can't Happen Here, Sinclair Lewis described the rise of fascism in America. Now Cass Sunstein has collected some of America's greatest minds to debate whether or not authoritarianism can happen in the United States. Publishers Weekly calls Can It Happen Here? provocative and timely. Can It Happen Here? Available wherever books are sold from Day Street Books. And now, back to Edge of Sports. And now it's time for the part of the show this week we call Kaepernick Watch, about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. This week, a couple of things I want to highlight. The first and foremost thing is this viral video that's going around of Kaepernick working out in Houston, and dude is just throwing lasers down the field. I mean, we're talking Lupe Fiasco style. Lay. Sir. And on a quarterback free agent landscape where people like Chase Daniel and Tom Savage are signing for a lot of money and Sam Bradford, who was too injured to play last year for 14 games, got signed to a one-year, $20 million deal with Arizona. I mean, it is just an absurdity what is happening. And I'll tell you something else that's an absurdity. It's the way in which sports reporters like ESPN's Adam Schefter, they don't even mention Colin Kaepernick when they're talking about free agent quarterbacks out there. And when they do that, they're actually part of the problem. They're aiding and abetting in collusion and erasure. So I really do appreciate that Colin Kaepernick was down there in Houston working out and put out that video just to show everybody that he's still rising and grinding. He still wants to play in the NFL and he's still throwing lasers and hitting. His uh, blackballing, collusion, whiteballing from the league is an absolute atrocity. Because, and not because of his individual life, but because of message it sends from the NFL that if you're accused of all kinds of crimes, particularly crimes against women, the doors are still open for you. But if you dare stand up to systemic oppression, to use the words of Eric Reed, they'll make you pay a price for that. So this show stands with Kaepernick, and we're not going to stop. Can't stop, won't stop. That's how we do. And that gets to part two of Kaepernick Watch this week, because... If you look at his Twitter feed, not only are there videos of him just going lights out throwing this ball, he's also continuing to put out the politics. Uh, this past week, he put out a quote from Jamil Alamine, otherwise known as H. Rap Brown. And check out this quote and see if it does or doesn't make you think. To be black is not revolutionary. When you begin to stress culture without politics, people can become so hooked up in the beauty of themselves that they have no desire to fight. It becomes ego gratifying just to be black. End quote. So Colin is really trying to make you think. He also put up a picture of a student sign from one of the walkouts this past week in the schools. And it, the sign was being held by a young uh, black kid, and this is what the sign said. As a black boy, I hope one day I have as many rights as a gun. Quote, unquote. So those are the messages Colin Kaepernick is putting out. They're messages that are designed to make you think. And that is clearly too much for the National Football League.
Well, that's all for this week on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu. Thank you so much, Royce White, for making the time and coming on the show talking about this difficult subject of mental health and mental wellness in sports. Thank you to The Nation magazine. And thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. It means so much. Remember, go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. It makes a huge difference when we get support to continue to do in this site. It means I can pay my producer properly, and it means that we can continue to do the kind of work we're doing and do more, which is our goal. For everybody out there listening, please also... Uh, Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, your podcast app of choice, subscribe to the show, write a little comment, make a rating. All of that makes a huge difference. Watch out for a new podcast that's coming out that my friends Danny and Jen are doing called Better Off Red. Uh, Please check that out if you get the chance. To everybody out there listening, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.